I easily describe myself that way um, as a slow learner. And, and in my darker moments of self-representation, I therefore don't praise myself for what I figured out, what I know, because it seemed to me it took forever. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. David Pereira is one of Australia's leading cello players. Born in Maxville on the New South Wales north coast, he studied at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music, commonly known as the CON, and Indiana University. As a performer, he's played with the leading Australian bodies, including Music of Eva Australia, the Australian Chamber Orchestra and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, as well as the Berlin Philharmonic and the Chilangarian Quartet. He's recorded cello compositions by Johann Sebastian Bach, and Carl Vine, uh, one of which has been a former guest on this podcast. Uh, and he's written books about cello performance and teachers at the Canberra School of Music. The former director of the Canberra International Music Festival, Chris Latham, once said of David, his cello playing combines a real emotional truth and depth with complete technical mastery. It's like watching the perfect distillation of cello playing. Today we'll be exploring not only David's musical career, but also what lessons the rest of us can learn from the successes and setbacks of a musical master about living a good life. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Andrew. Tell me how you came to the cello as a child. Uh, I know you dabbled in, uh, in singing as a childhood soprano as well as uh, musical playing. What was it that drew you to this particular instrument? I like my story, although it, it lacks the shall we say, glamour of, of an iconic story of the kind uh, at the age of four I realised I was going to become a musician. I, d I don't have that story. So I was a, a country kid in Young, in, on the southwest slopes of New South Wales, a townie. Uh, my dad was a high school teacher and my, my mum was uh, often at home and, and supplementing income by not being at home as well. And uh, there was music in the family. Some of it was uh, religious in a way. That uh, My father's father was a Methodist minister and played the organ. And uh, by the time I was in primary school at Young, music was a regular occurrence at home. We had um, 78s, 45s and gradually some 33s. And uh, mum, the records for our younger listeners. Yes, <laughs> mum's and dad's tastes were, were um, on the whole, what we would call classical, and um, I had I had a mucking around in a country town kind of childhood that I think was a privilege, and music was in the background. And only uh, at the age of eleven, ten, uh, dad started to offer me some piano lessons, and I evidently responded very well and um, at 11 I took up the cello 
in a quite pragmatic kind of way that Dad had said to me, well, if you show some interest in the piano, maybe we could have a look at an orchestral instrument. And he shopped around in some way or other for expert advice which instruments were more in demand. Well, that's pragmatism, isn't it, from a father? Um, and the cello came up along with names like tuba and bassoon, uh, double bass, you can see a little bit of a pattern there, can't you? Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and the cello uh, did happen because I went to a, a, a concert in Young where a violinist, pianist and cellist played and at that point I confirmed that I would like to learn the cello. So it's not a very glamorous story, is it? It's a very ordinary but I think likeable story. Absolutely. Uh, my uh, eldest son is a cello player, and I asked him uh, in anticipation of speaking with you why he chose the cello. And he said, oh, Dad, everyone at school thinks bigger is better. So when we had a choice between violin, viola and cello, I wanted the biggest instrument. Do you sometimes enjoy playing a, a big instrument with the, the big, rich sound that comes with it? I do. The, the cello calls for a real physicality. There is, I think... Um strong evidence that we need unnatural strength. It's a, it's a limited, focused kind of unnatural strength in, in, in uh, the hands, for example, um, or, and for scrubbing actions of the forearm when we do rapid uh, bow stroking and, and using our uh, technique of vibrato. We continue um, scrubbing or rubbing forearm movements quite long and even with high level of skill, it's tiring, and what's tiring can be injurious, and and so um, skill combining with a bit of unnatural strength is is there. And these days, when I play the cello, and perhaps especially if I play in front of an orchestra or with a Steinway grand piano, the uh, the cello, yes, it's true, struggles to be audible in some of these mm. situations. And so one's ability to get the largest sound out that's possible comes into play. And, and so having, having a strong physical strength in the playing of it, it's something I find enjoyable. And it's an interesting instrument to me in that it's, uh, it's invented in, what, the mid-1600s and, and the best, or what many people regard as the best cello pieces, uh, Bach's cello suites, which are composed just half a century or so later. Mm. Um, what makes them so special and what was it uh, about... What, what is it about Bach's cello suites that mean that we refer back so often to music composed just after the thing was invented? Hmm. That's a tasty question. Challenging. I'm thinking first off that it's a sizable body of repertoire. It's, it's a great gift from a great composer to have six suites. Um... What is the duration of the performance of these six, well, into the hours? And um, they also are a cycle, a, a journey that, that begin with a, with a quite popular prelude in G major that's on Master and Commander and other places, um, well known at weddings these days, and, and finish with a very exacting sixth suite that was 
presumably written for a five-stringed cello, and, and so a lot of it is written quite high and makes it harder. So there seems to be a journey from, from um, a, a lesser level of virtuosity to a maximum level of virtuosity across them. These things are interesting, but I, I think that cellists uh, in the last hundred years or so have seen in the Bach suites um, the soul of their music making. Maybe um, it was inevitable that we would find something, and, but this would be the obvious thing. And um, the, the suites, much as they are fraught with difficult decisions about um, correct stylism, say, and um, proper interpretations, by and large, cellists find find them uh, a very intimate matter to play, uh, a a way of of conforming, yes, but of identifying uh, oneself in a pronounced sort of way. Does that make sense? That they, they seem does. to be such a such a great way to express oneself, and I guess we have to include in there the the very fact that the music is these days generally considered to be sufficient unto itself although there's no accompaniment and a lot of what cellists do and have mm. done is um, with other sounds and so so that makes them special as well i think my answer is only partly satisfactory but it points to some of the truth no and and the the extraordinary depth of the of the suites uh, i think that the description of them as being a piece in which man has created a dance of God. Uh, do you? At what point do you bring uh, students to the Bach cello suites? Is it something that you hold back from them, or is it uh, they pieces you're, you're keen to introduce uh, young cellists too early in their careers? More the latter. Okay. Partly because I, I'm inclined to feel that children can have perfectly good insight into adult things at times and including uh, grown-up music um, partly because uh, not all of the suites are particularly difficult technically yes uh, and you as a as a performer, have uh, have spent presumably many thousands of hours of uh, of practice. I'm curious to think about uh, what it is that those of us who want to master other skills can learn from from you. Uh, both because I know you must have put in a lot of time, but also that you've changed your approach to teaching uh, over the and, and to, to learning and to, to, to learning over the course of your life. Uh, give us a sense as to the sort of volume of of, of, of practice that a uh, an elite cello player puts in, and how you manage to make the most of that time. Mm. Well. Now having considerably mastered the skill set of playing the cello, um, I experienced the need for uh, nominally, well, so to say, daily practice. It doesn't end up being daily, of course, in fact, but it feels like a daily practice, and I would estimate that it needs to be about an hour a day okay. still um, because of the neuromuscular um, achievement of 
of my organism over time and the maintenance of that so that it comes to mind easily the, the need of, uh, for maintenance in the athletic field. And uh, if one wants to re-achieve a PB, say, on the, on the cello or master new re repertoire that's mm. difficult, then the rest of the practice time that one might use is explained. So that I would agree with a distinguished colleague, Stephen Isselis, who said once, maybe it was a boast, that he never practiced more than four hours a day. Um, I would agree that that's a lot for a cellist, but not necessarily for a pianist. Mm. Um, and it would be a great deal too much for most singers. But I myself would say the first hour is maintenance. Um, I could probably combine maintenance with a bit of note learning and that I would often do the next hour and less often the third hour. If I will become um, more active as a performer than I already am, I could imagine uh, going to the three to four hours daily practice, say six days a week, again, as, in, as when I was younger. And I think that I could enjoy that again as well. The, um, your last question was also reminding me of what has ever motivated me to practice. And, um, and I want to quickly say that it more and more has become a scientific inquiry. So it, the cello playing these days, it's very, very clear to me that beyond certain pragmatic things like making a living, um, I'm still highly motivated to find out what I can find out. Um, let's use the ANU slogan, mm. the, the nature of things. So the cello has become, a, for me, a lens on reality. And, and my practice uh, is 50% scientific inquiry, really, how, how I could function better, how I could teach the functioning better, and so forth. So I'm a, I'm a, a genuinely motivated teacher. I would say, some people would say, in my experiencing what I experienced, that they are passionate about learning anything that could be learned from playing the cello, mm. that I'm like that still. And so I, I've just brought out a, a latest book called Pereira Cello Technique with um, accompanying videos. And this, I think, is one of the best things that I will have done in my life, one of the useful things that I've done. So I, I want to uh, come back to that issue of scientific inquiry in, uh, in practice, uh, but I'm also curious as to how you motivate yourself to, to do these many hours of practice, particularly you know, at the stage where you were part of orchestras and you had performance dates, uh, dates com coming up. Uh, well, not that you don't still perform, but uh, but you had sort of a set of external constraints. Did you find you enjoyed the practice that you you sat down at the cello every day, every day wanting to do it, or were there some days where it was a real chore? There's a sadness to my honesty in answering that question that I would have to say, um, a lot of the time I did not enjoy the practice. It was a necessity if I was going to distinguish myself as a as a better player or possibly a best player in any 
in any uh, within any framework. Um, but and this was a motivator as well. I didn't feel I knew that I wasn't a master of the instrument and that I had much to learn uh, about being a musician as well. Mm. And the non-mastery of the instrument, despite considerable professional success, was an irritant. And occasionally I felt like giving up because I was acknowledged as being important as a cellist, but I felt that there were so many unresolved issues in my technique and, and so much ignorance still about what it is to be a musician. And so sometimes that, that was um, very disappointing and, and I would go to the cello frustrated with my ignorance and my lack of capacity. In particular, uh, what robbed me of practice enjoyment in, my, in midlife was, was my, the, the failure of my body and, and my technique to, to be comfortable enough when I played the cello. And so I, I played despite discomfort. It's been wonderful not to have quit in the face of that and uh, to have allowed the last couple of decades where I have finally been allowed to feel extremely comfortable when I play and, and to start to taste what mastery might be. There was a time, uh, well, to be specific, I think by the time I was in my early 20s, I had started to voice to myself the idea that even if I could never do what others could do, let's say, play like someone who would win the, a major international competition, that I would nevertheless really want to understand how they do it. So it, it seems that I, I have really been interested in the truth of these things as much as in uh, whether I could do them. And that uh, ascertaining the truth, to what extent did that come through perhaps your most challenging moment in 2005, 2006, when you stopped playing as a result of your battle with depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. Was that the kind of key linchpin, the turning point? I think only indirectly. So my, my mental illness was um, only indirectly helpful of successes that have come since. For example, I seem to learn from mental illness the importance of the heal thyself admonition. Not to say that I wasn't uh, richly assisted by the health system and by medical people. I was greatly assisted, but I wouldn't have um, reg regained my health without a determination to solve my problems considerably myself. So this, this capacity that I seem to have, not of course unique amongst humans, to, to problem solve, again a kind of scientific inquiry thing of coming up with hypotheses and testing them, uh, sometimes in situations desperate, like how will I ever get out of Ward 2N at Calvary? Um, it's, I characterize myself perhaps wrongly as a slow learner because it seems to me that it took me 
a great deal of time to figure out that I should believe in myself, mm. where others perhaps always did. So who is smarter? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it took me a great deal of time to figure out how to be really, really comfortable when playing the cello, whereas other people could already do it when they were children. So it seems to me easy, easy, easily, um, I easily describe myself that way um, as a slow learner. And, and in my darker moments of self-representation, I therefore don't praise myself for what I figured out, what I know, because it seemed to me it took forever to do, to do that. In, in the lighter moments, the brighter moments, I am pleased with myself, not just that I didn't give up when others might have, um, but the insights that I now have, I do think maybe they are quite unusually special in some regards. And that's why I would dare to publish Pereira Cello Technique, because I'm confident that it's one of the best books ever written about cello playing anywhere. And I don't see how I could have that confidence and the insights that are required without my particular version of slow learning. It's a sort of uh, learning as, as we make diamonds uh, an approach to life, about the sounds of things. How would I uh, see, you, see your practice or your playing as, as different now to what it would have been 30 years ago. If I observed you now in your studio or on stage, mm. uh, how would I notice the, the changes that are so apparent to you on the inside? You, you would undoubtedly see, well, something that you mentioned from Chris, I suppose, Chris Latham. I think the word distillation was, yes. was used there. Now, the distillation, distillation is a lovely word and in danger of... Um, misrepresenting, of being up itself, so to say. <laughs> but it's not, it's not essentially in this case because like a lot of, well, people in many fields, but let's say uh, artists or those who make art objects as, as I do, um, there is the possibility that you, you, you fall upon this notion that there are things that can be included and things that can be excluded. And so the, the issue of choice arises. For example, in playing the cello, one can move around a lot more or a lot less. Hmm. And uh, by and large, we, we end up wanting to choose, I suppose. We, we look for an identity um, within ourselves, I mean, not even regarding the rest of the world necessarily. So the quest a question like, how do I really want to play? Or what is better playing? And, and in regard to the, to the latter question in particular, what you could include and what you could exclude naturally arise, I think. And, and so put nicely, it would be, and others have expressed this well in, this, in a similar way, Pablo Casals, for example, our great cello hero, uh, said something like the same, that, that one's playing ought to be including everything that's necessary and leaving out everything that's not. And uh, so that's the difference that you should be able to see, I think, these days, that I've, that I've 
over a long period of time, carefully excluded certain things. Um, movements, for example, that I, I could categorize as movements that are helpful mm. of, of what matters, let's say the sound that comes out, um, movements that are not necessary for the sound that comes out, and collateral movements, I mean, you understand? And yes. movements that would get in the way of the sound that comes out. There, there should be at least these three categories, I think, of moving. And, and for the listener to this conversation, let's say, a toss of the head. So a toss of the head should probably have little effect on the sound that comes out if it's done carefully. So it would be in the middle category. You might do it if you wanted to. Um, or a facial expression, mm. perhaps, might have little effect on the sound that comes out, perhaps none at all. So from the point of view of distillation, one might feel inclined not to pull faces since they are not a necessary inclusion of, of the playing. So there is something um, pure, purity-seeking in it, um, but I think of healthy kind. Many workers would do the same thing. What, what, is, what, what is really needed to be done and what would not belong in it. So it's not that you're more of a mover or more of a smiler now than before. It's that you're thinking about your physicality as, as you're, you're much more conscious about how that links to the, to, to the score then. Yes, I suppose that I, I, like a lot of musicians, I, I have identified the sound per se as the, the right object for my attention, mm. of my attention, or is it subject? And, and that um, w whereas there are many other possibilities, including how one looks, you see, and mm. how one looks easily gets bound up with one's ego, after all, do I look good or bad to others? And I care about whether I look good or bad to others necessarily. But, but I just decided that um, if I'm going to scientifically inquire into playing, then I'd better come up with good hypotheses like maybe it's the sound that matters, not how I look, and so on. And so it is scientific then. So we say, well, if we choose that it's only the sound that matters and what it carries, how it affects people, say, um, then what are the what are the best ways of moving that that give rise to the best sounds, and and so then that that's a further hypothesis that it would be that there that there would be a technique, a way of moving that gives rise to the to sounds best, um, and there would be what. Um, I suppose an idea that really does excite me a lot is that when human beings take up a cello, they um, necessarily find a relationship with that particular instrument mm. um, that should be subject to uh, scientific reality, well, re to reality, yes. so that it, it, it should be that there are bad ways and good ways of setting up that relationship and that that can be, um, for a professional player, that can be a lifelong interest. It's so interesting because I had expected that you would tell me that um, 
as you came out of the clutches of the black dog, you began to uh, do a whole range of different activities. You took your cello playing less, less seriously. You uh, smiled and had fun. But instead, you seem to have become more of a more of a truth seeker, in some sense more focused, almost more serious about, about your, your craft. Uh, yes, because I was enabled. This is the collateral gain of the mental illness, yes, and I'm not yeah. recommending mental illness to anybody. Uh, I w again, I would say in my own case, more praise to those who didn't get sick the way I did. Um, but the, my... You're drawing attention to my way of working with the cello afterwards. Well, I felt, I felt more able mm. because my uh, obsessive compulsive disorder was was um, a shadow through my early to mid middle adulthood that was no helper of my scientific inquiry or indeed of anything. It mm. was it was just a, a negative in my life to to be. Ten, tending to worry about things so that when when I finally was able to rest myself free of worrying uh, I had new life as a scientist with the cello that's on your uh, question isn't it it is it is yes. no it's 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 a it's it's a fascinating and to me quite unexpected resp response um, you're not not just a performer as well. You're also a uh, composer, and uh, uh, you recently performed the world premiere of Poem for Zoe, a uh, oh, yes. uh, composition you uh, you wrote for your six-year-old daughter, uh, one of your seven children. Um, what did you think about it? That was great because Zoe um, Zoe has enjoyed the song that came came out of that. Let me just hold still for a second and and say, because I think it matters to me a lot in my uh, musicianship, that starting to emphasize composing um, and for a long time writing about being a musician and writing about cello um, and teaching the cello and musicianship and playing, of course, that these growingly um, are a natural synthesis that that many musicians have found. And so, for example, wanting to... Hmm, let me just quickly explain. So cellists most typically have been interpreters and, and so playing other people's compositions as appropriately or as uh, individually or as well as possible has been the thing, and I, my training was essentially in the instrument and interpreting, which is not, of course, the same as what we understand by the verb to cover, mm. because to cover a song um, allows the coverer so much more creativity and freedom than, than interpretation does. So the, the creativity and freedom that an interpreter has uh, necessarily interested me from my earliest days as a student and and so speaking of a synthesis of these aspects of music uh, I can point to it very clearly in this way that by composing I, I understood how it is that notes arise on a page and I understood 
much more about the relation between a composer, say, and a performer, and 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 of the meaning of a score by being a composer than than had I just been an interpreter. One example: as a composer, um, I have understood how it is that you can wish that others would not change the notes that you've written, mm. uh, because we're interpreters in my field, usually not coverers. Yes. <laughs> At the same time, I, as a composer, I have felt that the that the performer ought to use a great deal of making, creating freedom when they played my piece. In particular, that they should take the score, and by any reasonable means, get it to sound wonderful. And so, there is an example of how, by being a composer, I felt that I had more right to treat other composers' scores that way, that they, many of them might have felt the way I do. Look, I don't mind too much if you adjust here and adjust there, but for heaven's sake, let it sound wonderful. And and that's a very balancing kind of point of view yes. from, from another that would be the ut utmost of, say, propriety that says, well, you know, the crescendo doesn't start until bar six, so you mustn't begin it in bar five. These two approaches are quite easily um, contradictory, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So does that Coming, make, but, yeah, sorry, does I, that make you a better player as uh, as, as a composer then? Uh, yes, I think I think that there's the capacity for the player to be better yeah. from composing and for the composer to, to be better from playing. And, Absolutely. And it seems also, um, interestingly, perhaps the way some of the world is moving these days. Shall I come back to Zoe now? Yes, please. So Zoe's my youngest child and, and I've been slowly moving through uh, nearest and dearest writing bits of music to do with them. And the latest, um, well, it just happened at home one day that I thought, oh, I, I, could, I could write this composition for a recital at the ANU School of Music and uh, maybe I'll, I'll do something for Zoe. And um, I just, it was a nice voyage of discovery where, where I found out that Zoe has a secret friend that's a unicorn. And uh, she's given me permission to report this fact, by the way. Otherwise, I might not. And uh, so Zoe's unicorn, called Rosie, becomes the uh, one of the main characters in the song that occurs in my new piece. What is most interesting to report about this? I suppose um, that I would plan a recital with a lovely pianist, Edward Neiman, and at the ANU School of Music, mm. which is so wonderfully... Um, being rejuvenated, I feel, at the moment. And I have a very strong commitment to the place again. And I wanted to give a wonderful recital with piano. Uh, I invited the new director, Kenneth Lample, to write a piece for the same recital. He did, and it was a very successful piece. That was all beautiful. And and I wanted to play uh, standards, Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev, with Edward. And I wanted to write something new of my own because that that's how it is now. Mm. That is my desire often to play my own music too. And uh, so there ends up being this piece for um, singer and cello and piano um, that's an occasional piece, really. It, it's a statement, my first recital back at ANU in a long time, and, and uh, meaning to show all of the richness of which I'm capable and, and celebrating um, being a father as well. So the 
The key thing to mention about this, since you're so kind to allow me the opportunity, is that it is a from-beyond-the-grave statement to Zoe. Since I'm an older father, 63 years old, um, I expect to be dead before she's very old. And and um, some of the transactions that might have occurred between a father and a daughter won't be possible. And uh, it really appeals to me to have... Um, written a composition that's really heavily laced with two or three secret messages so that uh, she would she would not be she she cannot see it yet but later she will realize that the song about her and the unicorn um, has to do with her father identifying as as that cosmic unicorn out there um, and when at the end of the poem um, I've written watching unicorn there is a there is some kind of cheerful suggestion that her long-gone father might be still watching ah. yeah it's cute so i wanted to stay on the theme of composer but you've just tugged all my dad heartstrings so yeah i think we should go there well given you're twice as experienced as, <laughs> as me in the world world of parenting uh seven more than beats three um how do you what what do you do to be a good musical dad to bring up kids with a with a, an appropriate love of music but without crowding too much pressure upon them to to perform for their parents rather than for for what for what they want mm-hmm. well i I've, I've been trained by the children um, very early on really 20 20 years ago, I, I, I received the training that um, it's all very well to provide the opportunities, but they won't necessarily want to become musicians. And um, happily, I think I was very ready to concede that my children didn't need to become musicians. It looks now that an obvious thing I might have done, which is to have um, taught at least one of my children everything I know about music, that it won't ever happen. And it's quite okay. So I suppose I, I learn learn from that what many parents <laughs> have to learn that there's a, there is a certain hands off your children that is very important that they, as is sometimes put, you don't own them, and and uh, and your role, uh, perhaps better, should not be to force them into anything. I didn't find that difficult. Do you uh, do you have music on in the background? Carl Vine told me that under no circumstances should I have his music playing unless the family was focused on it. We shouldn't uh, shouldn't have his <laughs> CDs on while we're unstacking the dishwasher. Uh, but do you have do you have uh, classical music sort of whizzing through the house? Um, it happens, but not not with uh, great regularity. We uh, we tend to have music that the children are enjoying, uh, and our children have very um, normal tastes, I think, for um, six, eight and 12 going on 13-year-olds. And uh, we're probably, we're more likely to encounter a YouTube clip from something contemporary than than a, <laughs> than a bit of classical music. And that's just fine, because I'm very broad church and I, I, uh, I'm as interested in silence and single sounds as any style of music. That's 
delighted to hear you watching cat videos with the rest of us. <laughs> uh, your dad picked the cello for you. Do you uh, have you done the same for your children in certain instances, or do you have you tried consciously to expose them to a range of, of instruments and, and let them have a little taste? Mm-hmm. There is a, there is a tendency, I think, for for musicians to uh, opine that learning a keyboard at first is helpful, and the, and I think that that generally has happened with uh, mm. all of my children, and then um, happenstance seems to account for the rest. Jamie, who's twelve, for example, at Gold Creek now in year seven, he happened to encounter a saxophone at Miles Franklin uh, one day at school, and um, came home enthusiastic to learn the saxophone. I think that's been iconic. That sort of thing. I'd love to tell you one funny story. My my firstborn Sylvia had piano and violin. It never really took, and and by the time she was perhaps let me guess about let's say about year three or four, maybe maybe four or five at Aranda Primary, um, the band was revivified, and somebody some kind person uh, threw a flute at her, and. Without my really noticing, there, were, there was this sound of flute practicing coming from her bedroom on a regular basis. And um, it's one of the loveliest stories, I think. Um, it's a musician's, an in, in sort of joke story. Where, so out the backyard one weekend, I said, Sylvia, you had those other lessons and it never really took you by storm, did it? But now these days you're, you, you're practicing the flute without being asked to, what is that? And... She replied utterly memorably, well, Dad, it's kind of like, you know, in the band, you don't have to suffer by yourself. Do you, <laughs> do you get that, Andrew? Yes. yes. And she really uh, taught the professional musician something so important then that, that it's, it's uh, for most people, it's incredibly important that the learning of the instrument is not a solitary activity. Mm, mm. Uh, and there is, I mean, I think of the instruments which make nice noises straight off. Um, I played a little bit of guitar as a kid, the piano, the cello, and those instruments which sound like uh, cats being mistreated from mm. the outset, uh, violin and flute come to, come mm. to mind. Uh, you've never had a tendency to encourage your children to start on the more melodious instruments before moving to the uh, more challenging ones? Haven't thought about that very much, no. Yeah, okay. I guess I'd be most interested what they tend to show a predilection for mm. and to go with mm. that because it, uh, one of the things I seem to have learned from parenting is the enormous value of of um, children's enthusiasms and if and whenever these days I would encounter an enthusiasm say a latest version that the eight-year-old would join cubs and I could I could identify uh, the focus of that enthusiasm as a positive not a negative that uh, it's your lucky day, really, isn't it, Andrew, when your child wants to do something and it's a good thing and, and it should be one of the easiest things in the world then if you have the means to get it to happen. And as a music teacher uh, of other people's children say, I'm very aware that unless um, the, the child's enthusiasm is present, uh, things are going to be pretty dire, if not hopeless. So... Yes, I rate enthusiasm very highly Indeed. and cheerfulness at lessons in, in the student. Well, as it happens, I have an, an eight-year-old in Cubs and it's a perfect outlet for his uh, pyromania, which uh, otherwise might be practised around, <laughs> around the home. I'd much rather he was learning campfire skills there. Um, in terms of uh, uh, 
teaching teaching youngsters, I suppose you've done an awful lot of this in a professional context yes. as, as well. Uh, do you, when you're choosing students or, or identif- identifying talent, how much do you th- are you looking for sort of some set of natural skills and how much are you looking for a kind of work ethic and an approach to practice? Mm. Yes, I, I'm more and more inclined to denigrate talent, perhaps not quite the right verb, but as a teacher, perhaps talent should be of uh, a really important issue, but it seems to me that if it exists, and I suppose it does, then the less talented the student, the more need they might have of a teacher. So that my business as as the smallest scientist of whom I'm speaking is to have know-how and to be able to impart it. And I'm most interested in, in the craft mm. of, of playing the cello and in, in what know-how exists about being musical. It seems to me that there easily is an error, shall we say, out there to, to think or to say that because somebody plays musically that they're gifted. Um, and I think that it easily is just a matter of know-how. Some, some people can play instruments uh, in, in a poor robotic fashion, but I figure it's not because they don't have the capacity to play otherwise, it's just they don't know what to do. Uh, then I wonder, in a moment like this, so is talent, is that what it is, knowing what to do without having had to be shown? But we don't usually speak of talent as knowing what to do, do we, as mm. know-how. We th- it, it, it's a word much more like uh, some kind of extraordinary act of divine grace that's been, you know, given to someone something. It's difficult, and for me, the whole talent thing. And, and I also th- am inclined to think in a more and more expert way that the know-how that applies to playing musically, or indeed other words for the same thing, I think, being expressive or being communicative when when playing, that the know-how is is just a kind of uh, through through a piece of glass, the same know-how as almost everybody has when they speak. So I, I'm more and more inclined to think that my role as a teacher in helping others to play more musically is just to show them how it's about the same thing as speaking intelligently or persuasively or communicatively and that I I deeply suspect that human beings only have one capacity that's uh, very well expressed usually when they speak like no I want it now most people can do that Mm. and when the same human capacity through know-how gets say into cello playing then the player has become talented. This is my latest hypothesis. And in your scientific thinking about uh, cello playing and teaching, uh, have you developed insights on how we improve what Angela Duckworth calls the grittiness of uh, of students, how you uh, improve the the, uh, the willingness of students to build up that extraordinary work ethic that just seems absolutely essential to uh, to uh, 
uh, attaining the pinnacle of musical performance? Well, I think it 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 mostly should be driven by uh, kinds of wanting or desire. Mm. So that the the enthusiasm, the persistence that's required. These things I, I mostly find explicable if a person wants something mm. badly, <laughs> whatever it is. So, and probably across a lifetime, ways of wanting can can stay the same, but also change. So, I've known, especially young ladies, for example, who've wanted to play like Dupre, and I know boys who want to play like the um, the twin cellists with their ACDC covers and so forth. So that it should come back to desire, I think. It creates a little dissonance in me because I'm well enough read in Eastern mysticism and philosophic thinking to be aware that uh, desire sometimes is seen as the root of all suffering. Um, that's a nice dichotomy, isn't it, Andrew? <laughs> It is indeed. <laughs> but I can't see anyone sitting practicing the cello, cello for long unless they want something. Mm. And and uh, then I my role as a teacher might be to, to look at the individual and propose what they could want if they don't seem to have wanted it already. Yes. Yes, but you're saying that you can't you can't create that desire for spending three or four hours at the instrument every day it has to no i think it, it makes makes very little sense yes to spend three or four hours doing much at all <laughs> a day doesn't it we, we need a good reason yes to persist to to spend that amount of time at one thing we need a very good reason and and in the case of the workplace there there is a at least one motivator. Mm, mm. So let me uh, wrap up with a set of final questions that I oh. ask all my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give your teenage self? Um, when the time comes that you figure maybe you'd better uh, try and solve that problem. And in my case, the time came in my early 20s. I made a big mistake and and unwittingly started to worry about things. So I would say to the teenage self that I was, when the time comes that you're tempted to become a worrier, don't do it. Worry will kill you. And it nearly killed me. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that generally speaking um, women are trustworthy I'm not so sure that there's such a huge difference in trustworthiness between men and women anymore I have a better opinion of men than I used to what generated that gendered notion of trust where did I think it was it was um, a man's way of uh, a wanting love with a woman and wanting the, the love to be great and, and I think that I, I just accidentally pedestalized women in general that they are saintly creatures and of course they are much more than just saintly and I hope that my response doesn't in any way 
suggests any kind of dislike of women, I, I would characterize myself as a man uh, very interested in feminism still, and recently asked one of my daughters whether they study it at school. And, and she looked at me very blankly, but she is a bit young perhaps. Um, but I, th I think it was a, a kind of natural error that the object of one's desire should automatically be something so perfect that, of course, women can't be perfect. When are you most happy? Um, I'm most happy probably um, the answer only makes sense if I qualify it and say I can be most happy in a number of different contexts but the one that comes to mind at the moment is when I sprint when I run as fast as I can and it feels good I love that there's a phrase uh, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but uh, la volupte, this, uh, this French notion of... Uh, Voluptuousness? Uh, no? No, it's, 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 it's rooted... It's, the root word is, is to do with speed rather than sex. Okay. Uh, it's the notion of the sheer pleasure of pushing your physical limits uh, and enjoying the speed and the ease. Uh, it, I've experienced it a few times in races, and it is uh, one of the true delights of being alive. I think it makes perfect sense that, that uh, sadly, as we uh, lose physical capacity, um, we slow down and eventually become stationary. My father is like that now. And um, maybe it seems a little banal, but an opposite is to sprint. It is life-affirming. It is, it is affirming of one's vigour yes, and yes. health to be able to run fast. And I feel so lucky that I can run hard still and not collapse. And as you've uh, answered the question, it's given me a moment to, to grab the quote. It's uh, Jean Bobet who's uh, writing about cycling. And he says, uh, La Volopte is delicate, intimate and ephemeral. It arrives, it takes hold of you, sweeps you up and then leaves you again. It is for you alone. It is a combination of speed and ease, force and grace. It is pure happiness. Yes, I can feel that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I exercise and meditate and I'm loved and I love. I am engaged. I think all of these things, I eat fairly well. I don't uh, uh, drink to excess and I... I don't have drug problems, and but um, staying healthy and well is a it's a synthesis of several necessary elements, isn't it? And you and your wife Gillian are both uh, trained yoga teachers, I understand. She's uh, better at it than I am, but I have a daily practice in yoga. I decided not to teach it after a while, and and but I I like to practice um, on an oval at O'Connor or possibly at Hall. Um, barefoot and I mix running and sprinting with asana practice and I don't get to the point of meditation always because by the time I've finished my postures maybe it's time to get back to the office, office as it were um, but it was one of the another collateral gain of my mental illness that um, 
I, I necessarily learned much better control of my mind, and I think control of the mind is not a four-letter word, control in that case. And uh, so a little bit or a larger amount of meditation on a regular basis. Uh, I love it, uh, the stilling of the mind to silence or stillness and the quieting of the mind to stillness, whatever the, the wording one picks. And the form of meditation that is my favorite is, is the one that empties the mind as completely as possible. So the spiritual side of yoga is at least as important as the, the physical side for you, by the sense of things. It's a kind of an ultimate experience. Um, I would more comfortably substitute for spiritual, in this case, uh, words like, um, well, say the word consciousness. So the when I empty my mind, and variably I can feel more or less very conscious, um, I delight in that. And I'm watching my father in uh, dementia at the moment and and f necessarily wondering whether, to what extent he is still conscious. And, I, and so I, mm. I find even more meaning in, in the idea that one could be more or less conscious. And uh, that's, that is somewhere in yoga, this idea of consciousness. And I think it may well uh, have a lot to do with what we sometimes mean by spirituality. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yes, uh, mostly culina oh, cul you say no. culinary. <laughs> Tell me about your favourite culinary guilty pleasures. I I like to max out on passion fruit, scooped 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 straight from the. So yeah, so it's on the it's on the weekly shopping list. Right. A, ba a bag or two of passion fruits for dad, it's and nobody not very naughty, dad. no one else is eating them. No, it's not very <laughs> naughty, um, but that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. And finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? That is such a hard question. Does it need to be someone outside of myself? No. I, I thought about that question a little bit, and I thought that um, my experience of myself and, and of life suggests... It's a very opti optimistic idea about human nature, of course, that, that um, by and large it feels better to behave ethically. And so it would be that sensitivity to what makes me feel good and bad that, that um, would most have an impact on my ethical behaviour. David, thank you very much for taking the time to share your musical life journey with us today. It's been a rare privilege. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.